We're spending the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show talking about a a largely forgotten story that uh, involves something that took place uh, at a research facility back in 1997 and something that, in a sense, would seem to have nothing to do with the current day. And yet, because of this incident that occurred at the Brookhaven National Laboratory, uh, a small leak which uh, of, of radioactive material which caused a media sensation, that facility was ultimately closed. And in a sense, the legacy left behind by this incident resonates with us to this very day. That is the contention of the author of a fascinating new book called The Leak, Politics, Activists, and Loss of Trust at Brookhaven National Laboratory. The author, Dr. Robert Kreese, is professor of philosophy uh, and, and chair of the Department of Philosophy at Stony Brook University and the author of this really interesting book about which we will talk for the next few minutes. Professor Kreese, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you very much, Greg. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about the book. I'm very curious, first of all, to know how it is that you even became aware of this incident, which occurred back in 1997. Is this something about which you had direct awareness at the time that it occurred? Well, yes, I did. I was, at the time, I was working on a history of the labs of Brookhaven National Laboratory's first 25 years. Now, you know, it was a historic laboratory. It was one of the first national laboratories that was founded after World War II to um, house, you know, scientific instruments had suddenly zoomed in size and cost. And Brookhaven was one of three national laboratories that were founded in order to build and maintain these instruments so that people from all scientists from all across the country um, could could use them. So I was working. So the first 25 years are very important in the story of of, of U.S. science, and I was completing this uh, this book about that. And suddenly, the uh, these events that are described in the book happened, and I was I I couldn't believe them. You know, a a small leak of. Um, uh, material that that the state, uh, the feds and locals said was not hazardous. It didn't get in, uh, didn't pose any danger. It didn't get into the drinking water. Um, suddenly, this caused a firestorm that closed the facility and caused uh, closed to caused to close the lab itself. And I was, um, but but I thought nobody would believe this story. There was uh, there were conspiracy theories floating around. These conspiracy theories damaged uh, important scientific instruments. There were, you know, protests with people who dressed up and uh, who got on the media with lurid costumes. There were politicians who listened to celebrities uh, rather than scientists. There were celebrities who became politicians. There, uh, I mean, one thing after another, and I thought nobody would believe this. You know, this is just too implausible. So um, I didn't do anything about it, but two decades later, it didn't seem so strange to me. Hmm. In other words, this I think what you're <laughs> suggesting is that what happened around this event in 1997 was perhaps something of a precursor uh, to the climate in which we find ourselves today. Is that what you're saying? 
Absolutely. It's sort of, you might call it uh, what happened in 1997 at Brookhaven on Long Island is um, the canary in the coal mine for what's happening today. And even more so because you see, you see in, in this one episode, you see things come into play that um, are around today, but you see them more clearly in this episode. Before we proceed to talk about what happened back in 1997, tell us a little more about the significance of the Brookhaven National Laboratory. Explain what kind of work they were doing and the significance of that work. Well, right after World War II, um, the, the, uh, suddenly, um, as I said, there were a lot uh, scientific instruments had suddenly zoomed its size. In particular, you needed things like uh, research reactors and accelerators to study things like the structure of metals, to, to image biological substances, to create medical uh, isotopes for you know di- medical diagnoses and, and treatment. Um, but these the, these uh, it, it was um, these instruments were too large for for single universities to afford and. You um, so a group of, of uh, Northeastern universities got together to found this laboratory. It was for not classified or, or not military research. So you know they didn't make weapons or anything. It was for for uh, non um, non military research. And uh, let me explain. An important thing is the difference between power reactors and research reactors. You know reactors because often they get um, confused or associated, and that was part of the story that that, that happened. Um, the you know nuclear reactors make vast quantities of two things: um, one is heat, and the other is neutrons. And what power reactors do is to keep the heat and throw away the neutrons, and they use the heat to they turn the heat into energy. Whereas research reactors, which are a lot smaller by 30 times or so, research reactors throw out the heat and keep the neutrons and use them for research because neutrons can pass through materials very easily and so allow you to to um, image things like uh, uh, metals and 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 other solids, but but uh, they also create um, radioisotopes that you need for. Um, for medical research, and uh, so this became a very essential place. Uh, the the research reactor was was um, was an, uh, an important element in United States science, and the first the first one was built at Brookhaven was called the Brookhaven Graphite Research Reactor. That was closed down after 20 years, and the second one was the the facility that that whose fate the book is about, called the High Flux Beam Reactor. High flux, meaning it had a particularly large amount of neutrons, and beam, meaning that these neutrons were carried out from the reactor in um, in beams to various uh, pieces of instrument. Incidentally, what is a professor of philosophy doing in the midst of all this? Uh, and and I'm, I must say I'm impressed at how much you have brought yourself up to speed, maybe in a previous life or a previous chapter of your professional life, uh, you were actually engaged in this kind of, 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 of scientific uh, material, or is it that you have had to bring yourself up to speed in order to have this kind of uh, 
comprehensive understanding of what they were doing at Brookhaven? Well, that's a good question, and I think about it all the time. Um, it happened in an odd way. I was in graduate school. I was, um, you know, in graduate school in philosophy at, at Columbia University, and to sort of make some money and to entertain myself. I began to write articles with um, my college roommate, who's a, a, a writer. Um, his name is Charles Mann. Have you heard of him? He wrote the book 1490, 1491 and yes. 1493. Um, yep. He's an excellent writer. He was my college roommate, and he proposed we write some articles about nearby scientific facilities and, and, um, and developments. And so in grad school, already I started writing about uh, places like Brookhaven and other scientific developments. So when I became a professor of philosophy at Stony Brook, um, I continued to have an interest in what was happening at um, um, in, in in contemporary physics and, and at Brookhaven. And um, it, I began to turn towards, in the philosophy of science, I began to turn, turn towards the relation between science and society. You know, how is scientific how is scientific information generated? How is it received? How is it used in policy? What are its social effects? Uh, that kind of thing. And I, I think that's incredibly important because if you think about it, um, all of the existential issues facing you know the world today are have a scientific dimension in them. You know, global warming, um, uh, pandemics, um, uh, toxins, those those sorts of things. So it's an incredibly important philosophical issue. What is the relation between science and society? Hmm. And that's the um, that's what keeps me in in the field. So so writing with Charles Mann got me into the subject, and philosophical interests keep me in it. Fantastic. But yes, you're right. I had to, I had to come up to speed. It took me a while to come up to speed, but but I'm still getting there. Mm-hmm. We're speaking with. Uh... Robert Kreese, uh, professor and chair of the philosophy department at Stony Brook University and the author of a new book called The Leak. Let's talk about exactly the leak. Uh, what leaked out uh, uh, of this Brookhaven National Laboratory back in 1997, something called tritium. Uh, tell us what that is, how this leak occurred, and, uh, and, and kind of the, the reality of, of what actually occurred in this moment. Okay, another good question. Uh, tritium, tritium is a an isotope of hydrogen. It's got you know high, ordinary hydrogen like in H two O and water has one proton in the nu- in the nucleus. Tritium has two, uh, a proton plus two neutrons, and it's slightly radioactive. It's it's what scientists call a small beta, a, a soft beta emitter. It, its rays um, can be stopped by a single piece of paper. And its half-life is 12 and a half years, so, you know, eventually it, it decays. Um, but it's considered so safe that it's, it's used in self-eliminating exit signs in buildings. Have you ever seen those, uh, Greg? The, mm-hmm. They were put in a lot of buildings after the World War, uh, sorry, after the World Trade Center bombing, the, the first one, um, so that you don't need electricity. They're self-eliminating. And they're used in some self-eliminating watches, geo uh, Hydrogeologists sometimes put tritium in water to track the in groundwater to, to track its flow. Um, so that's what tritium is. Now, in the reactor, you you have fuel elements in the core, and when they get used up, they're taken out 
and put in a pool of water for so that they cool down and to um, to prepare them for reprocessing to send them off off site. So there's like a swimming pool next to the reactor. So you put the fuel rods in the swimming pool, and while and the swimming pool eventually gets a certain amount of tritium. And this swimming pool, which is uh, about 10 feet across and 40 feet long and maybe 40 feet deep, I don't know if I, I'm not sure I have the exact dimensions, but they're in the book. Um, this big swimming pool, it slowly acquires a certain amount of tritium. And after a while, this tritium began to leak into the surrounding water. So it, it was a relatively small amount. It was about 30 what the scientists call curies, which is about the amount in one of those exit signs um, that I mentioned. And um, it took, the, but the thing was, it, it's, the Brookhaven scientists didn't discover it for 12 years. But when they discovered it, it, it the, the tritium was not in the drinking water. It was, um, uh, it, it, it wasn't in the drinking water either for the employees at the laboratory or, or, or people offsite. Um, but it was there. And so the lab wasn't entirely innocent in that the scientists hadn't discovered the leak for 12 years. Um, but uh, and, and the, the reaction was partly justified because if the if scientists said that everything was safe and the pool wasn't leaking and suddenly they say the pool is leaking, that's a cause for, for distrust. But the, 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 the leak was not dangerous. And the news of the leak got caught up in a lot of political and um, and social agendas, anti-nuclear agendas, and that's and the, the incredible twists and turns of the story that followed um, are are what the book is about. And eventually, that, as I said, led to the closure of the reactor and calls calls to close the um, Brookhaven National Laboratory itself. Just to uh, for for further clarification, or just to to confirm what you were you were just saying, uh, when it comes to the amount of danger, of actual hazard that this in fact posed to the community or surrounding community and environment, essentially the the answer to that question is zero. Is that correct? Yes, it was zero, and it was zero as confirmed by federal, state local environmental authorities, the Environmental Protection Agency, that sort of thing. Absolutely zero. And there's some incredible ironies in the story. Let me just tell you one. Um, a, nearby in New Jersey, a teenager, after a prom or something, went to a, happened to go to a landfill, saw one of those exit signs, thought it was really cool, because they are cool, um, opened it up and wound up ingesting some of the tritium. And then he noticed the, the the diagram of radioactive material, went to his doctor, and the doctor examined him and said quite accurately, you're, you're okay, there's no danger, and sent the kid home and told him to drink lots of water and pee it out. So, uh, But the, his pee, the, the teenager's pee, uh, had a higher concentration of tritium than the plume itself. So you have these two these two events: the Brookhaven plume, which was causing a fire media political firestorm, and this teenager who had ingested um, a lot of tritium, who was safe. Um, that's one of the, the the ironies in in the book. Hmm. So trace for us the 
explosion of concern, which it, more than once uh, in your book, I think, is characterized as a political firestorm. Uh, I mean, trace for us first just kind of the essential timeline of how quickly and to what scale all of this sort of exploded in terms of public and uh, political uh, concern slash outrage. Okay, I'll give you a few dates. Uh, Tell me if you want me to to fill in. The leak was announced in at the uh, the middle of January 1997. The um, the Department of Energy then fired the contractor in May of 1997. The um, two local politicians, Senator D'Amato and Michael Forbes, um, introduced legislation to terminate the reactor in September. Uh, A new contractor appointed by the Department of Energy took over the beginning of 1998, and the HFBR, the reactor itself, was terminated in the fall of 1999. So all of these events uh, overtake Brookhaven and its staff in in kind of bewildering speed. Um, One of the points... Go ahead. Let me say, too, that this was the lab's 50th year. So remember, the laboratory had, at this time, had, had, had its research at it had been awarded four Nobel Prizes, which is more than any other laboratory, um, any place in the equivalent amount of time. So it's 50, in beginning of 1997, laboratory is 50 years old. It's it's about to celebrate its, its half centennial and thinks the year is going to be full of celebration. And instead, it's full of total chaos and uh, even calls to close it. Do I remember correctly from your book that many of the scientists uh, on hand were uh, that many of the scientists on hand were rather neophytes when it comes to, I mean, for instance, handling sort of media outcries and so on? Oh, absolutely, and that was a part of the problem. Um, I mean, after, right after World War II, scientists, especially physicists, had a huge amount of prestige. The, um, you know, theoretical physicists were, their, their photographs were appearing in Forbes magazine and, and things like that. And, and when the laboratory was established, it was a federal facility, meaning that technically the, um, it, was, it, it, it was exempt from local environmental laws. So it operated as, as a kind of independent um, facility for um, for all those fifty years. I mean, it didn't it, it didn't really have to to obey local environmental regulations. So there was a, a, a kind of aloofness uh, that was there. Also, the um, community relations was not as developed as they are today. I mean, a lot of if there were community concerns. Um, some scientists would go out and speak to the public, but their tone was like uh, their tone was to view these opportunities as as um, teaching sessions. You know, here's what's really happening. Don't worry. You have nothing to fear. If you fear what's happening at the lab, you're being irrational. You don't know enough. And and of course, that was um, 
that, that just caused people to um, to think they were being patronized, to people that, that, that their fears were being dismissed. This was exactly the wrong thing to do. So there was, a, uh, as, as you said, there was, there was kind of a dynamic going on um, in, in which the scientists weren't um, weren't very weren't very uh, uh, effective at um, communicating with uh, a public who was concerned about what was happening in the laboratory. Right, and of course, probably one of the things we should say is that uh, some degree of of public concern certainly understandable, especially when we think about uh, incidents that have occurred. Uh, in which uh, the truth was not told and uh, things that should have caused great concern or great alarm were kind of brushed under the rug or, or out and out lied about. And, uh, and, and even scientific facilities and scientists are not, not immune to some of those temptations. So it's, it's, it's not as though it was a completely preposterous proposition that something terrible happened and they're afraid to tell us or too cowardly to tell us. And uh, so that is part of what we are talking about here. I mean, uh, that this was a possibility, an unsettling possibility, and people, in a sense, took that possibility and ran with it. Oh, absolutely. Um, the, uh, I mean, in several respects. First of all, as I said, the lab wasn't innocent. The uh, laboratory scientists had been assuring the public that, that everything was safe regarding the reactor. It was being uh, carefully monitored. And then this leak was discovered, and it had been leaking for 12 years. So um, uh, that, if, if they were wrong about that, what else might they be wrong about? That, that's one thing. Uh, another thing is uh, the particular character of radiation. You know, there, there's some risks that... that you and I take, uh, but we take them voluntarily. You know, we drive. Driving has a certain risk to it, or you know, smoking has a certain risk to it. Running across the jaywalking, which I do all the time, has a certain risk to it. But I take it myself, and it affects only me. But other risks are invisible, like radiation. I can't. Um, you know, the world is uh, that there's natural background radiation all the time. Um, but it's invisible. Radiation is invisible. So, and and there's it's sort of rational to fear invisible uh, uh, kinds of hazards that you can't smell or taste um, or or hear. And so you you ought to have a large larger amount of concern for that than 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 what what you see in the in the data books. Hmm. The, the, the there were a couple of different elements to this uh, firestone. A firestorm, and uh, one of them was the 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 activity of of politicians, who in a sense took this fear and uh, took this situation and and really uh, spun political gold out of it. In a sense, uh, it's easy to look at that and and assume that that was done essentially for uh, political gain. Uh, how would you assess the motives of of the legion of politicians who stepped forward expressing concern uh, and even anger about this? I mean, uh, was was any of, of 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 the response of of politicians springing from legitimate, sincere fear, or in in your opinion, was the vast majority of this at least opportunistic in nature? 
Well, you know, that's part of the story is it's ambiguous. Mm. Um, uh, at, at the beginning, there was a lot of opportunism. There was political gold, as, as you said. I mean, Senator Alfonso D'Amato at the time was um, was uh, going to be facing an election, a re-election. He had squeaked past the last election with about um, with less than one percent of the vote, um, and he had, in, at a time of increasing environmental sensitivities, he had zero environmental credentials. And, and I mean that literally. The, the League of Conservation Voters ranked him zero in terms of his zero percent in terms of his his, uh, his voting. Wow. But on the other hand. Um, you know, politicians are supposed to represent their constituency. And what what D'Amato heard was loud voices around him um, saying, look, we have to do something about this. So, you know, it's not entirely uh, – he was looking for environmental credentials. On the other hand, uh, it, it very, very vocal constituents um, were saying you have to do something about this. Mm-hmm. Now, when – when the reactor was ultimately terminated, you know, the, the sec- Department of Energy secretary was Bill Richardson. And, and I asked him, you know, p- point blank, why, um, who, why did you terminate the reactor when it was entirely safe? And he said to me, look, I'm a politician. I listen to the people around me. And while the, um, while the scientists were saying that the, the, uh, the reactor should be kept open, there were a lot of voices around him saying that they um, that it shouldn't be, and even the scientists in his own in the Department of of, of Energy in, the, in his own department were were saying, you know, look, this is um, we're getting weary of this. We have to um, we're we're sort of lukewarm because uh, it's it's costing a lot of money, and we might be able to use this money for for other things. So part of it is that part of it is political opportunism. But part of it is also uh, that that politicians l- listen to what's going on around them. So it's an ambiguous story. I mean, it was a firestorm, but but it's a firestorm that had um, that that had its own fuel. Right, and and I I appreciate how thoroughly and I think how fairly you you tell this side of the story. You of course also talk about the media, who of course, in a sense, were the gasoline that uh, were poured on the flame. Uh, of, of, of this uh, controversy. Uh, and uh, one of the things you, you talk about in your book is the sensationalist language with which this incident was, was described and, and, and discussed. And you say, while such language would have been appropriate to Chernobyl, Bhopal, and the Challenger launch disasters, it was not to the BNL leak. Uh, that's probably a really important distinction, which, in a sense, nobody was making uh, back in uh, 1997. That is, to write about this as if it were a disaster of the scope of those that I just mentioned, uh, that, is, that is just not right. Well, yes, that's a, um, and that's one of the elements that you see around us today. That, that shocked me at the time, but it's less shocking to me now, which is the use of extreme rhetoric. Remember, I said the tritium leak was not a health hazard as certified by federal, state, and local authorities. It wasn't getting into drink water, drinking water. It would eventually all decay. Um, 
but activists and media were using extreme rhetoric, like saying that this is uh, that, that this is Long Island's Chernobyl, uh, that this is the you know the Three Mile Island, and, and that sort of thing. So it's a kind you know we we see that today, uh, extreme rhetoric being applied into situations where it's not particularly appropriate. There's all kinds of other elements of this story that we could talk about, but one that we should, I think, address just briefly is the matter of the, the DOE, the Department of Energy. And uh, there are those who, particularly in hindsight, uh, take, have, uh, take, have issue with the way in which the Department of Energy handled this, and in particular, their failure to do anything significant to try to quiet the fears of the community and the public about this so-called health hazard. Uh, what is your assessment of the DOE's response to this? Well, again, it's ambiguous. Whose responsibility is it to quiet um, uh, huge concerns by members of the surrounding communities? Is it the Department of Energy, which is located in Washington, and who's who and and, and which runs? laboratories all over the United States? Or is it the contractor of Brookhaven associated the, the, this the manager, um, Associated Universities Inc. that was located in DC but but also ran uh, the laboratory? Or was it the laboratory itself? So there was there's kind of uh, it, it's kind of unclear who's who's responsible um, for um, for for handling those uh, those concerns. Mm. So that, that's another part of this firestorm is that there, there wasn't one person whose whose job it was to pour uh, water over the fire. Hmm. In our last minute, uh, what would you say is the most important significance of this story when it comes to the present day? Is it that this event is somehow resonating to this day in terms of affecting current events or or is it more that it helps point the way to where we are today? Uh, I, th- I think the latter. I mean, part of the, the lesson to me was uh, I, at, at the very end, as you saw, uh, I asked about two dozen people what the lessons of this this uh, event uh, were, and I got two dozen different responses. And we, <laughs> we, we think we, we really want to look for a single um, – you know, tweak that we could do to keep it from happening again, but there isn't that tweak, and so it's it's the the the, the loss of, of sync between the laboratory and the environment was was the um, was the important cause. So that all it took was would would be a simple a single slip up to hold, to cause everything to to collapse. Um, so I think what this what this is is a a. Um, as I said, a canary in the coal mine. It was a kind of warning to say, look, this thing might ha- happen here and it might happen again. Hmm. So I don't think it, it shows us a solution, but it, it, uh, but 25 years ago, it showed us something that, that, that did in fact grow and is happening today. Right. And could, uh, and, and something very much like it could certainly happen again and in some respects is already happening in terms of other issues related to uh, to, to the scientific community, 
the distrust which a large swath of the public has towards the scientific community uh, and, and, and what yep. we do about it. A lot of provocative, fascinating questions posed in your uh, really interesting book, again called The Leak, Politics, Activists, and Loss of Trust at Brookhaven National Laboratory. The book is published by MIT Press and uh, one of its authors, Robert Kreese. Professor Kreese, it was a great pleasure for me to speak with you about this fascinating story, and I thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show. Thank you, Greg.